Hello, and thanks for joining us on Altamar. I'm Peter Schechter. And I'm Mooney Jensen, still broadcasting from home as the Washington area just starts to open. And as we record this episode, we're in the middle of a U.S. and global reckoning about police response and racism in the wake of the murder of African-American George Floyd at the hands of a white Minneapolis police officer. The protests that have followed all over the country and the world, the violent reaction by the police and the growing strength of the Black Lives Matter movement has transcended borders, ages, race, and politics, and hopefully will result in transforming the way we talk, think, and act. We're encouraged by this great current of protest and reflection that may serve as a vehicle for lasting change. And Muni, as that's happening, there is now a parallel discussion that we on Altamar want to jump into, which is no less important, and which is the preoccupying violence in policing. It's a topic that isn't only an American topic. It's crossed borders and raised questions about the role of police and the scope of their mandate in many countries around the world. Look, this is a tough issue because at least with respect to the United States, there's no doubt that crime has gone down. Our streets are safer than they've been in decades. The images of the 1970s of crime-ridden American cities like New York and Chicago are things of the past. I happen to just be flipping channels yesterday, and I saw Serpico. I mean, this was not only it was a weird thing to see all these old cars, but the whole sense of New York as a place that you couldn't go out in, and it was crime-ridden. And indeed, American cities from Pittsburgh to Seattle have exploded as attractive urban centers that bring in younger generations. And the question, I think now in everybody's mind, is at what price have we gotten this reduction in crime? Has tough policing gone too far at the expense of targeting certain racial groups and demeaning certain rights? Indeed, this question has come full circle as defund the police has become a new rallying cry to trigger reforms. And already the Minneapolis police has gone even further and announced dismantling the police. And in New York, the plainclothes anti-crime unit has been disbanded. Peter, defunding is a loaded word, and some people think it's going too far, but it's pretty clear from the tenor of current conversations what the role and scope of police court, uh, forces is and how it will never be the same. And regardless of where one stands, there seems to be a consensus that there's a need to take a good look at what basic law enforcement institutions have become, and especially what they should not be. And today we'll talk specifically about two issues of concern, policing in urban settings and policing in civilian protests around the world. And we have a great and very timely guest today. And we had to, we had to search for this guest because we wanted to really talk with somebody who understood what's happening around the world. And Professor Clifford Stott is a professor of social psychology and expert in the dynamics of crowd behavior, riots, hooliganism, and public order policing. He specializes in understanding social identity processes from the inside and advises many institutions and governments. I'm looking forward to listening to Professor Stott, but first let's try to understand how we got here. Let's also make clear that while the epicenter of the role of law enforcement is the United States, there's been similar questions that have spread to Europe and Asia and other regions in Latin America as well. What is the underlying story here? Racism? Is it hate? Yes, but also budget and equipment. Simply stated, during the past century, cities around the world, as you mentioned, have blossomed, and with them, new social and economic realities have emerged that have required keeping public order. The easiest example is the UK, where the friendly global image of the neighborhood Bobby in the community was a worldwide symbol of the good cop. 
Now you look at the British police terrorism, immigration, xenophobia have given way to a perception that urban areas need a different type of law enforcement and crime prevention. And this has broken the trust and collaboration between citizens and police. While police killings in Europe and Asia are far lower, far, far lower than the U.S., the fact is that British Bobby now looks like a soldier in full uniform and guns and flak jackets and helicopters. And that's what they look like in many, many places around the world. All over the world, increased funding for police forces and more recently increased equipment and technology has led to a militarized version of crime management. The 9-11 attacks gave way to new resources and mandates to create counterinsurgency operations, not from the barracks, but from police stations in large cities. Surplus military equipment made neighborhood cops look like G.I. Joe. It's no surprise when a world where you got the war on drugs, the war on crime, the war against terrorism, coupled with funds and weapons and even training and punity, the police have such have become like so much more controversial. And we've seen this phenomenon in so many places around the world. If you just look recently where this has cropped up, you see it in Colombia, you see it in South Africa, you've seen it in Chile, which after emerging from conflict and, you know, they, everybody remains especially vulnerable to this means to an end type of policing. And we've covered at Altamar all the protests that have flared up in cities everywhere over the past 20 years and more and more, and more over the past five years, forcing police responses that are often excessive and ill-conceived. We've looked at Brazil, France, all over the world in recent years that we've seen scary images of forces hosing down protesters, worse yet, shooting at them. Sadly, in recent weeks, the U.S. has provided some gruesome footage of stun guns and tear gas against citizens as well. And the racial component adds fuel to the fire as poor neighborhoods suffer higher crime rates. Too often, the cops don't look like the communities they serve. They don't look like the immigrants and refugees in Europe. They don't look like the black and Hispanic families in Baltimore. The disconnect is obvious and racism and xenophobia exacerbate the problem. Police chiefs and many officers are white serving communities of color with high crime rates. These same officers are called to dispel protests with little training for crowd control, except the use of force. And even those huge amounts of artillery and fancy guns have not always contributed to reducing violence significantly in the world city. You talked about New York and you talked about, and we, we think about cities like Detroit. Yes, they're safer, but strongmen governments around the world are stepping away from democracy and usually are flanked by their police departments who are there to maintain order and allow them to stay in power. But even in places where honest efforts at police reform have been attempted, and there are many, and they've been led by courageous mayors, they've been really insufficient. So no amount of body cams or laws forbidding chokeholds and not even hiring more minorities or prosecuting perpetrators of violence have been sufficient. It looks like something else is in the making. And I think it's exactly that. Sort of so many times we've heard mayors and well-meaning police chiefs say, we're going to prohibit this part of policing or we're going to... We're going to increase neighborhood policing. And the frustration of one failure after another is exactly why voices to defund and eliminate police departments have grown louder and louder. Mistrust between officers and the public, structural racism, permissive practices inside police culture have got to be addressed. Reforms haven't worked in New York or Seattle or Ferguson 
or Baltimore or sadly, obviously, Minneapolis. And it hasn't stopped police from overstepping their bounds with protesters either in Hong Kong or in Santiago or in Glasgow. And so it's a problem that has to have a solution that isn't just about sort of reforms, small reforms on the side. There has to be some major indentations and change in the way police forces are organized. What can governments do, though, to scale back the role of the police in cities and protests by still maintaining safety? How can police departments shed their tolerance and culture of racism and their inclination to excessive force? And what are the reforms that work around the world? And this is what we will ask our guest, Dr. Clifford Stott, professor of social psychology at Keele University in the UK, where he's also director of the Keele Policing Academy collaboration, KPAC one of Kiel's strategic research centers. A member of the SAGE, the British Scientific Advisory Group for Emergencies, he specializes in understanding the role of psychology and dynamics of crowd behavior, riots, hooliganism, and public order policing. He's lectured and written at universities and publications around the world on the subject, on policing and criminal justice, including advising the EU, the European Commission, police departments, the English Football League, on crowd management and policing. We could not be in better hands for this very complex subject. Welcome to Altamar, Professor Stott. Hi, thank you. We are in the Washington area and we are in the middle of a national revolt against the police triggered by George Floyd's murder in Minneapolis. What are the conditions of this particular incident that sadly is not the first that created this worldwide uproar? Well, a very challenging question. And I, I think I'd be... I'd be lying if I, I pretended that we had an adequate answer to it. I think what we can say is that it's interesting that the issue is spreading at this time in the context of, of COVID. And I, th I think one of the things that it's important to recognize about what COVID is doing to societies across the world is amplifying inequality. It's making salient the issue of inequality and amplifying it in people's minds. So I think there's there's a key issue here about why why was the death of George Floyd the trigger incident? When those kinds of incidents have, have gone on before, uh, they'll, they'll go on again, but they don't always precipitate out into these widespread uh, social movements and, and, and protests. So I think when we, we try to understand that relationship, what, why does it, it spread? Well, we have to understand that it spreads around a shared perception of injustice that's shared by people across the globe. And that sense of the illegitimacy of the status quo, combined with a sense that now is the time through which we can come together to try to change it, is one of the mobilizing dynamics through which uh, protests cascade out. But they don't, they don't always cascade out. But when they do, they, they have a profound impact. And I think perhaps the last time we could think of anything on this scale, it would potentially be the Arab Spring in 2011. Remember in 2011, there was a whole swathe of protests across different countries. So, um, I, again, I, you know, I can't pretend that we've got a full answer to that question. What it has uh, done as well is uncovered the situation of police forces in the United States. And while violence in American cities has come down exponentially, what is the cost? And there is there an underlying explanation for police violence, especially in the U.S.? Is it racism, poor training, too much military equipment? And can that be 
kind of replicated around the world. Yeah, well, again, your questions are really challenging ones because they open up so much complexity. And I think one of the dangers that we always run into where this kind of issue becomes news is that people want simple answers. People, people pretend that they have simple answers because at some level the issue is, is political and political positions try to position themselves in relationship to the different underlying issues around which we form our arguments. So we can't pretend that there is a simple answer to that question. Why, what's the issue of police violence? Well, multiple issues. I mean, when it comes to it in the United States, one of the issues is the complexity of policing. Somewhere in, the, in excess of 18,000 different police forces in America. So the capacity to create any form of regulatory control across all of those different organizations is itself a massively complex challenge that can't be met easily. And we must recognize that policing is, to a large extent, the exercise of power. And what we're looking at here is circumstances where there are abuses in the exercise of power. So what is it then that allows particular organisations access to excessive levels of capability to exercise that power and when they do so are left unaccountable for any uh, violations of, of that exercise of power? So it's about a, a complex array of issues about what, what is the framework within policing takes place. It's the capacity of those police forces to, to operate in their local environment and then the structures around which uh, policing is constrained or not uh, that I think flow into uh, circumstances where we, where we get those abuses. But uh, America is obviously a very, very complex Situation because when you raise the questions with me um, in our email discussions, you know, one of the things I have to put on the table is the, the fact that you have circumstances in America where people can walk around with automatic rifles in the street. Now, if you've got a society like that, we shouldn't be surprised that the police get a little bit twitchy when they're policing people in that context. So the use of firearms, again, I think is, a, is another issue here about why it is that, that uh, so many people die at the hands of the police in America. One of the things we, we researched, and of course, it's, it's tempting to try to find simple answers and none of them are, were the recent granting of military su surplus to police um, to police departments all over the country and, and making police look like soldiers. But then I was looking at pictures from police around the world and they all look like soldiers. So whereas, you know, there is a terrible firearm culture in the U.S., it seems to be a worldwide phenomenon. You um, see the police around the world, they look more like each other than they look, you know, like their cultural backgrounds. I'm not sure that that's always the case, though. Uh, certainly, yes, there are police forces who work towards the end of the, the spectrum where we would describe them as paramilitary, paramilitary formations. But let's recognise that w within any state structure, uh, paramilitary policing is, is necessary, you know, at some level. They're, 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 these are fundamental to, to the nature of, of democracy, that you have the capacity to retain a monopoly on the use of force. And there, there are broad kind of sets of sociological issues here about what kind of policing do we want. And I often challenge people to reflect on what does the word police mean? What, what are the police? 
And in order to answer that question, you have to look historically. And historically, the concept of the police as a kind of civilian organization charged with the responsibility of the enforcement of law and order comes from the UK. And it's born out of a context where militarized form of social regulation become unacceptable. Your listeners may may know of the Peterloo massacre in Manchester, which was one of the foundations through which British policing came about. And that issue is about the way in which the suppression of a protest, these were chartists looking for universal suffrage, were massacred at the hands of a military intervention in a context where the political system was becoming a liberal democracy. Well, it's impossible to sustain a liberal democracy if you are forced to impose order through military force. So the origins of policing are about an alternative to military force and a way of regulating social order without the requirement for military intervention. So if you have a police force that is overly require, requires militarized forms of intervention, by definition, you are moving away from the foundational principles of what it means to be a police force in the first place. And that's really what we need to get to grips with, because policing isn't about military oppression. It's about policing the public by the public for the public of the public. And that is a model of policing through consent. Let me ask you, Professor, the, the death rates in Europe and Asia are far lo- lower than U.S. police cause death. Now, you, you mentioned guns, and there's, it is certain that the U.S. is such a sui generis case in terms of all the firearms that are circulating in our society. But are there other reasons why some, so much fewer people outside of the United States die at the hands of the police? Is it only guns that can explain this? No, as I say, I think there aren't any simple answers to this issue. But I think in the US context, one of the key factors about why there are so many deaths has to be firearms. It has to be the liberal access to firearms in uh, the US as a function of the Second Amendment. And I, I think in that context, I mean, I have in my mind a um, video I saw on Twitter recently of a police force. I can't recall exactly where it was in, in the US, obviously, who were called to a guy who was asleep in a bus stop, a vagrant who was asleep in a bus stop. And they turned up with automatic rifles and ended up shooting the guy who was asleep at a bus stop. And where you see that play out, you can you can understand at some level why they did it. Because just before they shot him, the guy goes into his bag. Now, obviously, if he's got a, bag, a gun in that bag, then, of course, he could shoot the police officers. And, of course, in that context, it's, in a sense, training for them to think about striking before they are uh, they are injured in, in the operation of their, their, their duty. So... I think you have to see it in context. If there weren't so many opportunities for people to have a gun in that bag, then the need to police it as if they did have a gun in that bag reduces, and therefore that whole circumstances is far less likely to happen. So again, no simple answers here, but surely there has to be an issue here about the availability of firearms on the streets of the US. Now, if you were consulting here in the United States to a mayor of a large municipal city and he asked you, 
where in the world are cases of good policing or cases where policing has work works best? I'm not saying nothing is ever perfect, but you know, is there something we ought to be looking at, a case study that we ought to be looking at that is the criteria for good policing? And what what country has embarked on a reform or what city has embarked on a reform program that has turned around its police and effectively managed crime? I'm trying to give our listeners the opportunity to look, not only talk about the United States, but always trying to open up their senses to what else is happening in the world that could be a case study for what could happen here? Well, yeah, of course, there are uh, examples on a worldwide basis about police forces who have gone some considerable distance to reduce the likelihood of, of conflict. But I would urge people not to look abroad. There are already good examples in the US. And I think that that's another challenge here is that the idea that there's a one-size-fits-all solution is also really untenable, is that what we can do is to understand the principles through which effective policing works and try to apply those principles into a US context that's going to have its unique challenges, um, histories and, and, and cultures. So it's about learning what those principles are and, and applying them. So for my perspective in terms of understanding where things have gone right, partly that's to do with our understandings that are emerging through concepts like procedural fairness or procedural justice. And, and here, the idea is that people obey the law, not because they're frightened of punishment, but because they le- believe in the legitimacy and the morality of, of that law. So where we see the law as legitimate and just, we're far more likely to comply with it, and we self-regulate ourselves and self-regulate others. So the question is, how do we create forms of policing where those perceptions of the police as being fair, as being just, as being uh, legitimate are, are enabled? And, um, and part of that, what we see is, is connection to the community. It's through, through community policing. It's through neighborhood policing. It's f- through policing from within. The other is to recognise the context in which the policing is going on. So on the one hand, there are general issues around police citizen encounters on a day-to-day basis, and then there are the highly salient issues that have, I think, in a sense, brought us to the table today, is how do you police large crowds? And that those, those are different sets of issues because crowds are kind of have a different dynamic to them um, that's different from your everyday encounter. But nonetheless, what we know from the science of why people riot is that those encounters on the day-to-day can flow into the dynamics through which violence will escalate in the context of, of, of crowd events. And, and perhaps the best example of that is, of course, the death of, uh, of George Floyd, that that was an encounter in the day-to-day that has cascaded out into this massive uh, protest movement on, on a scale that's um, un- unprecedented for, for many, many years. So they're interrelated, but they're also different. I want you to be specific with us. So, I mean, one of the things that I keep hearing discussed now, which I really hadn't thought of before, what you call the cascading protests, is that a way to attenuate the police-driven violence is to create non-violent, non-emergency policing in different situations. So the, the vagrant that you described who's sleeping in a car at a 
bus stop is not addressed by the police, but is addressed by different types of social, sort of a police type of social worker. Is that something that's viable? Is that something that other cities have done, large cities have done well and with success to create these different types of law enforcement, not all of them being police? Yeah, I certainly think that there's plenty of evidence out there to support this agenda around what has become known as defund the police. And I think it's a challenging idea, but it is an idea that has some traction, that part of the issue here is the failures of other forms of intervention leading to circumstances where people have no other opportunity other than to come into contact uh, with, with the police. So if we think, for example, about the analysis of the rioting in England in 2011, one of the factors that led to that was police stop and search, what we call stop and search, what I think in the US is called stop and frisk. But the issue here is that young black uh, men were disproportionately likely to come into contact with the police because they were on the streets. Now, in effect, they were on the streets because they had nothing else to do. Because in a context of government funding cutbacks, what had happened is youth centres around the area where they lived had all recently closed down. So in that context, with nowhere else to go, they had no alternative to be on the street. But then because they're on the street, they come into contact at a much higher level than otherwise would have been the case with the police. That creates a problem that doesn't need to be there. That isn't a policing problem. It's a problem of failure to fund other youth services that then cascades out into and becomes a policing problem because of the lack of funding of those other services. So I, th I think wherever we look at this argument, we try to make sense of it, we have to recognise that it is... Um, something that can only be solved through multi-agency partnership. And part of the problem here is that, that those multi-agency partnerships have broken down and therefore the police are left, in a sense, holding the can for the failure of those other services. We have discussed the underlying issues of police violence and all over the world, the, what, what strikes, you know, what really is very, very visible is both nationalism and racism. The component that I think maybe is the common thread in police violence, the police forces don't look like the citizens they serve. What kind of solution can be given to uh, making the police a reflection of the communities, the more diverse communities that they are uh, supposed to serve and protect? Hmm. Well, I think in part this is why I argue so vociferously for interventions based on neighbourhood and community policing. Because it's by becoming embedded in those communities you begin to understand them. You understand the world from their point of view and then you can work with those communities to promote better relationship to the police that's more likely to lead to circumstances where people from those communities will think about joining the police. So they can become more representative um, in that way. Um, but, it, but again, I, I think that where we're looking at these um, overall challenges, I, I think we need to challenge some of the assumptions of the question. The issue here is not about police violence. It's, it's about the justification for that violence. 
So, for example, we just had a situation over the weekend in a park just outside London where um, a guy walks into the park and he murders three people with a knife. Now, in that circumstance, it's perfectly appropriate, legitimate and justifiable for the police to use really high levels of violence to stop that guy murdering somebody else. So it's not the case that we're talking about police violence per se. We're talking about how that violence is used, where it's used, and why it's used. And it revolves around what we call the proportionality of that violence. Is that violence proportionate to the threat, to the need, to uh, the requirement? And what we get upset about is the lack of proportionality. What we see in front of us are circumstances where that police violence or police use of force is used where we can't see an immediate justification for it. And that's the issue for us. But then Even then, we're left asking a question. Why is that an issue for us? And part of it is because where we see police using violence unjustifiably, it starts to encroach into what we believe are the fundamentals of what it means to be a democracy. You cannot, in a democracy, have a situation where the police systematically violate the proportionality at work in the application of violence into the context. Because as and where that happens, if it happens systematically, we tend to refer to those places as police states. Let's get into politics a little bit. Nationalist governments and authoritarian leaders love using the police to strengthen their hold on citizens. And we think of Philippines and Turkey that have used force on citizen protesters, the dictatorship and what followed in, in Chile. But there's also democracies that have um, been using questionable tactics. And you mentioned Britain and France against the yellow jackets. Is there some sort of a, of a link between excessive authority and, you know, kind of political control? Well, certainly it interfaces with the, with the ideologies, the beliefs that political actors use to justify that violence. So this is one of the, the problems of, of crowd psychology is that the perspectives that have been generated over, for over 100 years have been generated around the idea that crowds are basically mad, bad, and dangerous to know. That ordinary people, when they get into a crowd, can somehow undergo some kind of dysfunction psychologically and become part of the mob, the mob psychology, which is by its very nature irrational, volatile, and therefore flows into how the police and the state think about the control of the crowd that we need to control the crowd because the worst case scenario is that we get mob rule. We get the circumstance where the crowd and its irrationality um, overcome the civility of rationality and therefore we get some kind of breakdown in the social order. Now that's far from the truth about how crowd psychology actually works, but it's a dominant view through which political regimes come to justify what it is that they do in the repression of crowds. And that's a, that's a key factor that we need to understand, that crowd psychology is, to a large extent, political in its very nature. It looks like the George Floyd issue has touched a common thread. Do you anticipate this growing into a worldwide movement this summer? Or will this kind of die down? And I know I'm, it's a crystal ball type of question, but the phenomena you see. Well, I'm, unfortunately, I'm, a, I'm, I'm very much, when it comes to the current context, a glass half empty kind of person. 
I don't think that this is an isolated incident, and I think that the situation is going to get a lot, lot worse. And I think I think the reason for that is that we are now, of course, about to enter what is probably going to be one of the worst economic recessions in global history. And the economic inequalities, the injustices, the politics that will come through that economic reality are really going to be very, very challenging indeed. And then as, as we move on from that, we have other things coming over the horizon in terms of climate change, in terms of other sort of more localised uh, economic harms, like, for example, in the UK, Brexit. Uh, so I, th- I think that really what we're starting to see now is, is the birth of a period of social instability, of which um, the Black Lives Matter is just the first of a whole sequence that are going to be coming across the next few years. Let me ask you about, we've been talking about a sort of excessive use of force and police state, and what's happening in Hong Kong is something that you know a lot about and uh, is something we're all concerned with. Can you talk a little bit about how those protests were managed and what seemed to be initially the protests were allowed, then what went wrong? Well, a whole combination of things, but I think it's a really good opportunity to exemplify what we've just been talking about there in terms of police perspectives and police tactics. It's very clear that one of the tipping points that began to radicalise the protest in Hong Kong was on the 12th of June outside their Legislative Council building where the police took the decision to fire tear gas. Now, when you listen to an interview, a recent interview with uh, the forward commander who took the decision to fire the tear gas. It's very clear that in his own mind, he was firing that tear gas in order to uh, disperse the crowd because he felt that the crowd was inherently disorderly. It was a, a mob psychology and the only solution to that is to disperse it. But what that actually did was to create a an, an interaction that, that radicalised the protest movement and shifted it into uh, into gear, as it were, um, and and saw the beginning of a process through which those protests became resilient, um, embedded, and, and and far more conflictual. And what we see in the wake of June the 12th is then a continuation of those tactics, which did little, if anything, to reduce the potentiality for disorder and quite a, quite a lot to amplify it. So these kind of reactionary tactics, they, they're not very effective because they have these negative consequences that flow from them in terms of creating a form of protest psychology that itself fosters a far more violent culture within it as a form of resistance. We need, we need to understand that there is that dynamic at work in crowds But as I've tried to stress through our discussion, that that dynamic is occurring in a broader context. So in Hong Kong, what is that broader context? Well, it seems to me it's a journey to 2047. It's a journey to the one country situation. So let's ask ourselves, what does that area of the world look like in 2047? And the vision that China has of it is of the Greater Bay the Greater Bay Economic Project of a unified and integrated economic system built off the back of primarily IT, 
information technology and expertise. It will become a global economic hotspot. And we're on a journey to that. And 2019 was part of that journey, that transition to a a one-country economic system in that part of the world. Professor Clifford Stott, thank you for joining us on Altamar. Mooney, as we just said, the headline of this thing is that he thinks it's going to get worse. I, I, frankly, I have to tell you, I'm surprised because, you know, these things tend to die down and move in cycles. But I was very surprised to hear that he thinks this is going to accelerate and uh, become even more tense, in which case I think the direct effect on U.S. politics and indeed worldwide, how the world answers all this is going to accelerate. I think it was... His first answer was really interesting, Peter, when he talked about how the root of everything and why this resonated around the world is because it touched on inequality. And I think that's kind of a very profound analysis of how this is all playing out. And it's also the best explanation of of what the causes are. And, And the fact that he describes the consequences as an escalation is concerning, but it's also maybe time to address the inequality from the source. There's no doubt that inequality and as he said covid has a lot to do with with what's happening we we just before the program started mooney and i and um juan who's helping us record this we're discussing that in the state of virginia hispanics and african-americans are the overwhelming number of covid cases by really amounts that make you want to cringe at how unfair and how profoundly unjust that is so I think the way that the professor has linked the injustice of COVID, the inequality, the economic inequalities, and, and the problems with policing, I think were really fascinating. And with that, we'll see you next time on Altamar. Thank you for joining.